Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is actually the second version of this show to be released. I released one early this morning and then my dad and I listened to it and we thought there's a few things in there we would rather come back to with more clarity um, than was in the first episode that we released this morning. So if you already listened to it, um, no big deal. We welcome the conversation on some of these things like police brutality and abortion, and we're going to come back to them. Um, If you haven't listened to it yet, then you're already getting the, the version we want out in the world. This is the difficulty of talking about hard things is that you're going to make mistakes from time to time. And we know that. And we're okay with that, frankly. Um, And we just want to be upfront about it. So this is the edited version of the one released early this morning. That is on Thursday, February 18. This one is more concise and has less rabbit trails um, because of the changes uh, that I made. So I hope you enjoy it. We're grateful for anybody and everybody who listens. And without further ado, I read an article today in uh, NPR that was, um, it didn't have a lot to say, but it was helpful to me in thinking about how important it is for us all, every one of us, to address these conspiracy theories and the uh, preponderance of lies that are being told over and over again by basically by Trumpers and uh, by the Republican Party. I mean, to be honest, I, I just, you know, we've got to, got to call it like it is. And this article was written by, uh, was written um, by a woman who uh, was a, is a psychologist uh, at the University of Michigan and her husband. And basically, they were they were wanting to talk about how do we talk to friends and loved ones, family, who have bought into these absurd conspiracy theaters and have bought in 100%. And she was telling about her concern for her father, who's uh, my age, and so in his late 60s, early 70s, and he was at the Capitol on January 6th, and she was watching this on TV, and she was horrified by what was happening. And so she called him, and he answered, and she said, Dad, are you okay? Are you all right? I'm watching what's happening. And he says, don't believe everything you see on TV. Don't believe everything you're seeing right now. And she's like, he's telling me not to believe what I'm seeing, what I'm seeing with my own eyes. He's telling me not to not to believe that. Mm -hmm. So then what am I supposed to believe? Well, that's not us, of course. Well, who is that then? Of course, that's, that's you. You're there. You're a part of that. What are you doing there? You enabled that. You empowered that because you believed these lies. And she's trying to, so then she said, so she said, so I'm trying to gently, you know, and lovingly confront my dad with the absurdity of what he's saying to me right now, which is don't believe what your eyes are seeing, right? We're not doing this. Of course you're doing this. You enabled it. You empowered Trump. You're there because you believe the lie that the election was rigged. 
mm-hmm. in face of all the evidence, which I laid out to you, by the way, she said. She had done that to yeah, her father. She yeah. said, I, and, and you won't believe the evidence of your own party. Your own party is saying, leaders in your own party, you won't believe it. So she said, I'm trying to lovingly and gently confront him with all of this. And because that's how I think this should be done. Well, then she brought on another uh, psychologist, friend of hers from a different university. I don't remember where. He said, well, I have a different tract. I think we got to get in the face of these folks. We got to, we got to call this out. Mm-hmm. We got to name this. Yeah. We uh, gentle. Now's the time for us to speak into this clearly. And we don't, we, we ought to be kind, but we, we don't need to be worrying about being overly gentle here. So what I took from that article mm-hmm. is that there are times and with certain people where, yes, you have to take it slow and be gentle. But there are also times and with certain people where you just got to say no. That, that's just not true. Yeah. And here's the evidence. And you can believe it or not, but here's the evidence. Here's the science. Here's the accurate accurate evidence and you got to be able to do both it's a little bit like just as a possible analogy i have a couple of analogies but just one real quick and then i'll let you finish whatever thought you had is what do you do if you have somebody in your life who's an alcoholic right some people can be spoken to rationally and see the problem that they have but then other times and i don't have any personal experience with this but you have interventions and those are uncomfortable and hard and um so I, yeah it's probably not one size fits all well it's also the same in a marriage where there's an abusive spouse husband or wife and mostly husbands mostly husbands right you know of course um but i do want to recognize that, it, that you know no i don't want to say that it isn't both sides. No, it's mostly Yeah, not, not really, right? It's 90-something percent husbands, it right? got to be. And, um, but it's like um, there needs to be a point where the victim is often the one who needs to be confronted by just saying, you got to get out of there. Yeah. You know, you just, he's not going to change. You just got to get the heck out of there. Right. Right. They well, need to be empowered. They got to be empowered. In that sense, they need to be empowered. Absolutely. Right. right. Which is, which, by the way, is what I think needs to happen. The reason I write the blog and the reason I do this with you is folks will say, oh, you just preach to the choir. And I'm saying the choir right now needs to be empowered. I'm okay with preaching to the choir right now. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that people don't agree with me, aren't listening to me anymore. They're not reading my blogs. They're not listening to these podcasts. But people who need encouragement, right? who need somebody to help them put words to how they feel, it's like when I'm preaching. And I can tell when I'm doing it well. And you can tell this when you're teaching too. When you're doing it well, it's not that you're speaking to the audience. It's that you're speaking for your audience. Mm-hmm. And you're putting words to things that they knew they knew but didn't know how to say. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people like us try to do in these yeah. podcasts. And with my writing, I try and put words to things that people know that they knew when they hear it, but yeah. they didn't know how to say it. That's and, right. And that's where I think the church is failing right now, too. Yep. The church is failing because it's not empowering its people to address what's happening out in the world. Mm-hmm. It's just staying with that very um, safe message of 
God has a plan for your life. Jesus died for your sins. One day you're going to heaven. Everything's going to be okay. That's that's the simple message. Right. And and message is about how to live well, how to live, how to be married well, how to raise right. your children well, how to manage your money well. Right. All the things you can get other places and better. Uh, yeah, avoiding any big structural problems within the United States or within the church or within the world, right? Those mostly just get avoided with the assumption that that's not what church is for or about. Well, let's talk about when George Floyd happened and then um, other similar kind of events happened. and The Black Lives Matter movement rose up. Then pastors in southwest Michigan were all over that for a Sunday or two. And then after that second Sunday, they began to get pushback. Blue lives matter too. All lives matter. And they and they immediately went back into their safe shell mm-hmm. of we don't preach politics. We don't want to do that. Every yep, all lives matter. You're right. We just got scared. We were speaking into something that we knew we needed to speak into, but we got immediate pushback. And immediately went back, and now nobody's talking about this anymore. Pastors aren't talking about Black Lives Matter anymore. Right. That if issue. anything, it, Black Lives Matter has now become a cudgel to use against people who say white Christians have a problem. You yeah. say, well, what about Black Lives Matter? Right. What about their riots? I right. mean, think about that. Oh, think yeah. of that about that progression. It's It's sick. I get that all the time, though, from my writing. Somebody will write me every time and say, why don't you talk about black violence? And I'm like, because I'm not black. And there are plenty of black people who are speaking to their own people about black violence, and they're doing it well and better than I can. I'm white, and I'm a Christian. And so what I see is white violence not just in the form of what happened on January 6th in the Capitol. The way we structure our taxes is white violence. The way we structure health care is white violence. The way we uh, aren't willing to share our resources with people who are trying to climb out of a hole, we give them no ladders, that's white violence. In a lot of cases, black violence is caused by white violence. It's a reaction, too. It's well, well it's, it, the conditions they've been put in are because of white supremacy, yeah. right? And structural racism. And then you have a, a broken community stuck in, um, often stuck in poverty, no multi-generational wealth, poor education system, right? So these are things that the, and, and let's just speak it plainly, in large part, white Christians have chosen to let the structural problems persist because those structural problems are not bad for us. No. Right? And then when black violence pops up, it's used to say, look at them over there. What a mess. Right? We need to be protected from them, if anything. Yeah. You know, this is the... It's such a... We can use Israel-Palestine as an example, though, because Israel-Palestine is a laboratory for for what oppression and prejudice does to a people, both sides. You know, so what we hear about is when Palestinians react in violence, we hear about how violent Palestinians are. When Gazans fire rockets 
out of Gaza that basically do little or no harm. Now, I'm not saying one death or five deaths or ten deaths isn't five deaths, ten deaths, twenty deaths, too many. I'm not saying that. No, but see, that, isn't it funny, though? Yeah. Listen, I mean, you're doing what we all feel we have to do. Right. The exactly. minute we talk, the minute we're about to say something negative about the Jewish people or Israelis defending Palestinians, we know we're on the back foot. You know what I mean? And I, I do. don't blame I you do. for it because I, I do it too, and everybody does it. I but do. it's 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 a symptom of the problem, right? Right. Well, what we've seen there, and and now we've been involved there since two thousand and five. Um. It's amazing how much restraint Palestinians show. I've had Israeli, Jewish Israeli after Jewish Israeli after Jewish Israeli tell me, if I was treated the way we treat them, mm-hmm. I'd be putting on a suicide vest. That's a quote that I've heard over and over mm-hmm. again from Jewish Israelis who are right wing, not not lefties. These are be soldiers. Right. Well, I'll talk to you at, uh, well, because at the wall. Part of it is because they actually know what's happening to Palestinians because exactly. they're soldiers. And so if you bring that back here mm-hmm. and then we think, well, you know, look at those. I'll tell you one. I'll, I'll just I'll do a quick sidetrack, which will bring which is makes mm-hmm. a point of bring back. So a recent blog I wrote really talked about white history of violence you know it was it was entitled this is not us and other lies we tell ourselves and i made the point that white christian violence is a part of who we are and who we've been for centuries millennia really and one person wrote me back and said marlin I am disappointed that you lump all of us together in one in <laughs> one statement mm-hmm. and you don't say a thing about all those democrats and how they're pro abortion and they kill chill babies. True. I'm like, do you not do you not are you not listening to yourself? What did you just do? Yeah. You condemned me for lumping all of you in one place and then you conveniently lumped every Democrat in one place without even realizing what you just did. Exactly. And this happens all the time with the black, you know, we're not violent. One woman uh, on a Facebook page said, while the Capitol riots were going on, this violence can't be conservative Christians. We're not like this. And the implication, of course, is, Mm -hmm. well, other people are Muslims are violent. Liberals are violent, for sure. Black Lives Matter people, they're violent. But mm-hmm. we, good, white, conservative Christians, we're not violent. Why aren't you violent? Because you, you don't measure your violence right. in what you do socially and what you do economically. Right. And uh, the, the, um, how you have positioned people of color where they have a have a almost impossible task yes. of getting equal with you. Right. That's violence, too, but you don't yes. see it that way. Right. Because it's well, not physical violence. I mean, if we want to talk about actual violence, I mean, who were do, who was it showing up and lynching black people? Those were white, and I, I'll wager a bet they were all white Christians. 
in one form or another. Now, that wasn't two years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. Slavery. When they needed, when, when white people, when white Christians need it, and they feel the least bit threatened, yeah. they'll use it. They they'll will. use violence. And have. And have. And that's what we saw on January 6th. Now, um, you know, at the same, at the, on, on the same page with that, if we, we, what I will often hear, well, that wasn't us. That was, I mean, my family wasn't a part of that. We weren't even here when American slavery, we came later. Um, we don't connect, if we came from the Netherlands, we don't connect with the fact that the, the ships that brought the slaves over from Africa to South America and eventually and then to North America were Dutch slave ships. The Boers in South Africa were Dutch so my ancestors have a long history of involvement in the slave trade. But we distance ourselves from there as if there's no DNA that came along in our history that today continues to linger in me. It's like this one guy who said to you, just because my kids have white skin doesn't make them racist. No, you're raising them will make them racist. Or even you could just say, this society will make them racist, right? Um, American society creates, to one degree or another, white people with a certain amount of racism, some more than others. And it certainly, the flip side is, these are white males in this instance, the, the children he was talking about, they're going to be highly privileged. Generational wealth... They're going to have that. Um, they're going to have great education, right? They're just things that they're going to get. Um, and this is generally true for white people and white men. Now, you, you do have white poverty. That is an issue. Um, that you, by virtue of being born into that family, you can fail one, two, three times still land on your feet you know right. and uh, i know people who've done that i know i've had instances of that that would have been different for me if i didn't have a family structure and family wealth to fall back on it's just so easy to miss that stuff to not see it not want to see it even right because you think i personally this is what people do and they, even when in churches talk about racism it's often in this kind of way well, I personally don't hate black people, right? As if that's all racism is. And we know it's just, that's not even the worst of racism anymore. That's not even the most insidious part of it. Yeah, I'm reading Barack Obama's biography, and of course, he's talking about, the chapter I read today, he's talking about his first campaign and how he needed to balance that whole thing about being black and doing enough to please African Americans who thought he should be speaking out more strongly on issues, but also not wanting to make race the main issue because there were more, there were bigger things for him than just race or things of equal importance to him than just race. And he didn't want to be that candidate, but he, he acknowledges in there his struggle with his own people and that early on 
in his in his running for presidency against Hillary Clinton, many black leaders, black pastors and black leaders, supported Hillary Clinton over him. Mm-hmm. They didn't. Um, they, well, he didn't think he could win. Right. And the second was they feared the Clintons. Okay. And then he talks legitimately. About, yeah. Probably. And then he talks about his grandmother. He talks about how what he discovered is that black women, older women, were afraid for him mm-hmm. because they didn't want him to be disappointed when he lost. Oh. And they they were so worried about him mm-hmm. and almost to the point of pain for them because, you know, here's another black son. I mean, this made me, really made me, tear up a little when I read it. So many of their black sons and daughters tried to get out of the hole. Yeah. Tried. You know? Yeah. And thought they were going to. Mm-hmm. They they could do it. They they could do it. And they 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 were disappointed. And when they were disappointed at the, the you know, the third, fourth, fifth time, it destroyed them. Yeah. And we don't have any sense of that. I was talking to no a idea. young girl the other day uh, out of our church who uh, who uh, had an OMVI, uh, and I was talking. No, wait, had a what? Uh, what is it? You know, operating a motor DUI. Vehicle. DUI. It's, there it is. And she, we were talking about, it and I said, "How are you doing?" She said, "I don't know how I'd have done this without the family I have." I don't have a license. I can't drive. You know, I can't, you know, my family has come behind me and supported me. Right. And I'm able to, she was so wonderful. She said, I'm over able to overcome this because I have a family who's able to help me. She, I can't imagine if I was in a family right. who couldn't help me or wouldn't. A very common mistake that lots of people make. Oh, absolutely. Right. And Miss a white gal uh, from a middle-class family. Mm-hmm. And, but imagine if you're not that, yeah, you know, how do you pull yourself out from, from something, you know, that, as you say, lots of people have had happen or should have myself included. Yeah, of course. Exactly. (laughs) You know, so I'm not saying what what a comedian once said, sadly, is you've either had a DUI or you've been eligible for one. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, uh. That is far too often true, absolutely. But the point I want to make, though, is that we who are white middle-class folks, and, and, I, and I, again, you're going to hear me do the same thing I just did a little bit ago. You know, I don't want to be hard on us either, but we've got to face some realities or we're never going to get to the point where this, this country of ours and our church are healthy. If we don't face some reality, some truth about how privileged we are, mm-hmm. and and that's not something that's not something we ought to apologize for. It's something we ought to want for everybody. Yeah, and fix. Let's fix it. Yeah, and let's let you know. So, I got a nice email from or text from a, uh, and then I'm going to stop. I've been talking too much, but from a friend I knew at GVSU after this post blog I wrote about mm-hmm. or the sermon I preached where okay. I said things can change. He sends me, he's a football coach at Miami of Ohio. 
and he sends me this text, and he said, Marlon, listen to your sermon. Love you, man. Let's make this thing better. Right. And he's a white guy, works a lot with um, black athletes, you know, at Miami of Ohio. And he's like, let's make this thing better. So I think that's where I'm at, too. But it starts with the acknowledgement that that I'm the biggest part of the problem. Yeah, we have to have a reckoning. Yeah. And uh, I just think we thought we could avoid the reckoning. The church thought it could avoid it. The white church thought it could avoid it. I can remember thinking it's okay to be a white Christian in Southwest Michigan who reliably votes for Republicans at every level, that's okay. That's fine. Even though I was, had a lot of concerns about that. Why, you know, because Republicans at the time, and I don't, I don't know where I would say now, but they didn't believe humans had any role in affecting, negatively affecting the climate. They didn't believe in the social welfare system. They were a party that was almost entirely made up of white people and represented by white people in Congress. Um, They didn't believe in systemic racism, and as far as I can tell, they still don't, right? But we felt like, well, that's that's still okay. And we're now, you know, the Donald Trump presidency has passed, but we know that the cancer that he represented isn't in remission, not even close. And in a sense, we didn't know we had cancer. White Christianity didn't know it had cancer or didn't want to acknowledge it, right? Maybe we had a big tumor that you could see, but we weren't going to go to the doctor about it. And now it's like, no, we're going to go to the doctor or we're going to destroy ourselves and I don't even know how much more. And um, that's how I feel. That's where we're at. And the reason... I want to speak plainly is because beating around the bush has just gotten us nowhere. Nowhere. It's just made things worse, frankly. You know, and so you were talking about sometimes when you're when you're teaching or preaching well, you know it because you're speaking you're speaking for the people. That's what you said, right? And it's so true. It's it's like a permission giving. It's like they knew it. They wanted to say it. They wanted to feel that way. They wanted to entertain that idea. And for some reason, when it's spoken by somebody who they have some confidence in, they're like, I knew it. Yeah. You know? And then they they feel free to go down that road. They wanted to go down it. But they were scared. Yeah. You know, and we were scared once. I was scared once. You were scared once. And um, when you're not scared anymore, you've gone down the path and you realize this is a better path. It's hard but it's a better path and we need more people on it. You really do, I think, have an obligation to speak it. You got to say it. We got, we need to have it said out there. I think one of the things that's happening, this is, I'll use this as another uh, analogy and it's a hard analogy. I'll just admit that up front. We have in our country millions of people, roughly half our country, um, let's say, maybe maybe more like 40%, who have been radicalized by right-wing media and the Republican Party. 
That is just a fact. They've been radicalized like we talk about radical Muslims getting radicalized by their religion. And in in our case, it's white Christians. And some of them have been so radicalized that they're living in an alternative reality. And that alternative reality is fake and it's ugly and it's making them ugly and it's destroying our democracy or, or at least definitely threatening to destroy our democracy. And I, for a while we thought, oh, you listen to Rush Limbaugh and uh, you watch Fox News and now there's other ones. There's OAN and there's Newsmax and there's even, there's, I think there's one called the Epoch Times that I don't even know about but I know is troublesome. And um, we thought that that was just kind of okay. Well, some of us listen to CNN and MSNBC, and you listen to Fox News, and we're all kind of sorting it out. But it's not okay. It's just not anymore. Those people are being radicalized by lies, a constant stream of lies, right? And now it's infected the basically the entire Republican Party with Trump as its spokesperson but tucker carlson and hannity and i mentioned rush limbaugh and other names that i don't even know because i don't i won't angles yeah and i i just i refuse to swim in those toxic waters i won't go there i will check out fox news sometimes so that i feel like i have some idea what this alternative reality what people in this alternative reality are being fed but i won't go further i won't listen to rush limbaugh you know, I won't listen to Hannity. I won't listen to Tucker Carlson, Bill O'Reilly. Um, so many of them have been outed as, you know, patriarchal, sexist jerks, frankly. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, certainly. Um, but that's what's happened. And those people are in our churches. Yeah. And we don't do anything about them. We don't know what to do about them. And well, we fear them. Well, I've, so one, I've, yeah, one of the things you wanted to talk a little bit about what you think we need, what we want to see people, anybody who's listening, yeah, who agrees that the, some of these things are problems. What do we want to see? Right. What are we asking of them? Well, because my our world or my world is the church world, and has been for a long time. I think about what could we realistically expect from pastors, given the difficult position they're put in. Uh, in most of the congregations, you know what what could they do, and um, recognizing they're they're just in a tough spot. I mean, these I talk to them all the time, and and um, you know I, I'll say to them, you know, I know you got a living to make, you got kids in college, you got a family support, and you have to be careful. But one of the things that I've seen that's effective is the interview. So. Find somebody, and I would say to you, if if you go to a church, talk to your pastor about this and encourage your pastor to find somebody that he could interview on a Sunday morning or she could interview on a Sunday morning who is going to speak some of these things, but in a way that isn't going to be angry or isn't, it's going to upset some people, but it's going to be them it's going to be in a format where it's an interview format. I've seen that work. I've mm-hmm. been the yes. interviewee on many of those. And I, when I was doing Israel-Palestine work, you've been 
the interviewee on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a that's a really good practical suggestion. I just more broadly, I want to say, the church has become afraid of the truth. We fear the truth. Often pastors know what's true about a text, about the Bible, yeah, exactly. about society, about their congregation, about politics, what have you. They know it. People in the audience know it. Nobody says it. The truth is off limits unless it's a cute, Bible-affirming, Jesus-affirming, ancient Christianity-affirming truth. That's the only truth you can consistently, or if it's a conservative truth. You can tell truths that conservative people like all day, every day around this country on Sunday morning. You can piss off liberals all day, every day in church. You can do that, and you will not pay a heavy price in most churches. That's right. The only, tr- the only truths you can tell are ones that conservatives are willing to hear. Right. That must end now. Yeah, it I has agree. to. So some of the truths we don't tell are about the fact that we know the first 11 chapters of Genesis are myth. You get up in church and say that it somewhere, ran, you know, get randomly dropped in a church somewhere and be asked to preach on Genesis anywhere in Genesis 1 through 11 and lead with, well, these are myths, but they have things that they can teach us. People are going to fall out of their seats. Pastors, every single pastor knows this. They may choose to reject it because it makes them uncomfortable or they know their church isn't going to like it. But there's no person out there who hasn't, very few pastors who haven't been shown or who don't just know by reading it that these are ancient myths. We aren't even ready or willing to tell that very obvious and simple and not even terribly difficult truth to people. How are we going to tell the really hard ones about race and about the right-wing media and about the huge lie that the election was stolen? I mean... It's not sustainable anymore. Well, going back to Genesis, though, even the writers of Genesis knew what they were writing with myth. They they were trying to understand how it is that their narrative was different than the narratives of the competing religions around them, which had some <laughs> some fantastic, but no more fantastic or hard to believe or mythological than what what the first 11 chapters of Genesis are. They just tended to be polytheistic, so they had other gods in competition, right? right, That our texts don't have. There's some um, fragments of that that you can see there if you're looking for them, but that's what makes it look, I think, fantastical to us is the polytheistic part of it more than anything else. Yeah, well, and even the Noah story. I mean, we know there were lots of flood stories at the time when the Noah story was written, there were lots of flood stories out there. And Noah's flood story, in, Noah comes off badly in, his flood, in the flood story that ends up in Genesis compared to the flood stories around it, where Noah actually argues with the God, or the, the man who builds the ark, actually argues with the gods about how... Maybe you don't need to wipe everybody out? Yeah, I mean, that's right. He's like, really, we're gonna, you're going to kill everybody? Babies, you know, what seems impulsive, yeah. And but Noah's just like, Oh, you're gonna wipe them all out, okay, sure, I'll build a boat, 
Oh, I get to save my family? Good. Okay. Yeah. Everybody else is gone, though? All right. Right. Works Whereas Abraham me. and Moses yeah. right. have a better reputation they because they at least yeah. tried. Exactly. In, in, in Moses over and over again. Abraham for Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Is that the yeah, one? Sodom and yeah. Gomorrah. Well, you, you've had personal experience in doing this, so you're speaking out of personal experience. You, you have sat in worship services. I've heard you say that and, and not get invited back. You taught a Sunday school class in your own church, let's just be honest. And after two sessions, because you were upsetting three old pastors. Yeah, mostly. You didn't get invited. You, your yeah. own church. The interesting <laughs> thing, though, is that there were also people equally as thrilled oh, to I have know. somebody saying what they know, you know. And um, it's just hard because the power, it tends to be that the powerful people in the church are white conservatives and we're scared of them and we. We shouldn't be, or we and we can't be any can't. any longer. I think yeah. the other thing I would want to say to people is, you've often decided before even trying what you can and can't get away yeah, with. Yeah, that's right. I mean, dip your toe in the water. At least find out where the line is. You you may have set the line way further up or back. I don't know how this analogy works. Than it actually is. You may be surprised what you can say on a Sunday morning or in a, in a um, Sunday school class, if you still have those. I just so often people are censoring themselves out of fear for what they think their congregation won't allow. Um, and I would just say, try some tests, test it a few times and, you know, throw some things out there. Do the interview, then it's not even you saying it. You can invite one of us, we'll say it. And or then choose you can see story. how it goes. Choose a story that, makes your point you know you can you can you can find stories out there personal stories or other stories that i often use uh stories out of israel palestine to make my point about systemic racism here right i i'll do that very subtly but people aren't stupid they pick it up and you remember when i was invited to preach at the crystal cathedral you helped me write the sermon yeah and it was a sermon that really presented jesus as racist right we did that on purpose mm -hmm. and um we just we just spoke it out we were it was well crafted and at the end of that sermon i got a standing ovation at both services right and when i walked out the guy who was uh my sponsor because the shooters were all gone the guy who was my sponsor he says i want you to know that does not happen very often here so uh, people are hungry the truth has power. They were it, hung, it has hungry an for odd, it. It's an odd sort of thing. I, I have it when I listen to podcasts or mostly it's that right now or I read in a book and you read a line and it just washes over you. You're just like, oh man, that's true. Right? There's a mysterious kind of power to the truth that I think we're not tapping into it. We're not tapping into that power. It has power. And... You should use it. You should use that power. You should tap into it, and you should see what it might be able to do. Yeah. What you can encourage your pastor to do is to be a little bolder. And um, I think you can do that in a way that's encouraging and supportive. You have to realize how fearful she or he is because the people in the congregation who he's afraid of, he has reason to be afraid of. Sure. 
they are mean spirited. They're not to they, be trifled with. They right? are not, they, and they won't. They don't want to be made uncomfortable. So he's he needs to be encouraged, and when he does it, he needs to be encouraged. And well, you have to have his back, uh, or she when they when they venture out and do it, because they're willing to and they will try because they, they they're just in a really tough spot right now. I think it also, and I'll, I'll just kind of end with this. It also feels good to say what you know is true. It can be scary, but it it it's so freeing. It's so liberating. You know. Go ahead. Well, I would just say I don't think pastors realize how many of their people out there are hungry for this. I tell them this all the time. Your people are hungry for new ideas. Your people are hungry to hear you say what they know to be true, and you never say it. They're hungry to have you say it. And you can say it in a way that doesn't have to blow things up. It is possible. I've done it. And there were people who didn't like it, and there were people who left. But I'll tell you what, there were more people who appreciated my humanity, Mm -hmm. my willingness to be transparent, my sensitivity, my honesty. Mm Mm-hmm. About this, there were more people like that than like the other, and we need we we need a concerted effort across the board by white Christian pastors to confront the lies that are being told in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. These lies are being told in Jesus' name, but mm-hmm. but more and more, I think we're going to see. In the, I I said to a young pastor the other day, I said, look. We can't allow the Bible to be our God. We have to realize it's a book mm-hmm. that was written by men, 100% by men, who had no idea about the things we know to be true today. Yeah, And they did their best, maybe. But the fact is, it's not God, and that word cannot be taken as the only word on everything. That's right. All hands on deck. It's all hands on deck is what we're saying. I I think we've got to get pastors to at least try. Yep. And I'm I'm encouraging lay people to encourage your pastor at least try to address this because we're at a tipping point here in our Mm -hmm. country. Absolutely. And in our church. And here, I'll tell you one, I'm sorry, but you know who supported, who, who elected Barack Obama as much as anybody else? Young people. And because young white kids, 20 and 30-something, they don't have to stay engaged in church. They are Americans, and they need to stay engaged in American governance because it, it affects their lives. They don't need to stay engaged in church. And the generation below that, millennials, they don't even... They don't even imagine that the church might have something to offer no. them by and large. No. And, and frankly... Currently, I would say, for the white church, I can't speak about the black church, they're not wrong. Because the things they care about and the things that they want to think about and the problems they want to solve, the church is uninterested in the white church. Black and Hispanic pastors are copying these white church plant pastors. And they're also staying away from politics, not doing the things they used to do. And I just read an article this week by a prominent black pastor who said, we're losing our kids. They're still showing up in church because culturally, that's what they do, but they're not engaged. The Black Lives Matter 
This was not a civil rights movement that involved the church at all. Pastors aren't involved at all. Yeah, or that's very right. very few. They're not involved. It's young black and young white and young Hispanic men and women, twenties and thirty somethings, mm-hmm. who are the Black Lives Matter movement, and they don't even expect their church to to support them. I know. So how do how do we think these kids, our kids and grandkids, are going to stay stay engaged in church when they don't have to? They're right. not. Right, and why would they? We're at the tipping point right now. We still got millions of baby boomers and generations underneath them who are going to hang with church. Right. But even they're walking away. Either we start embracing the truth and speaking into issues that matter in everyday people's everyday lives, or sooner we're just going to be irrelevant. We are almost already to most people in our culture, we're going to become more so. Right, and right now, frankly, we're dangerous. It almost would be better if we were irrelevant because the white church is actually dangerous. Yeah. Sadly. That might be a good thing to end on. Might be. Later. Hey, thanks so much for sticking with us. See you next week.